great to be here with you. Uh, we brought the weather with us, as you can see today. And so Anna, my wife, beautiful wife, is over there with our three wonderful children. I've got a little family pic as well, if you're wondering what we all look like. That was me trying to work out how to take a selfie, so excuse my face on that picture. But yeah, we planted a vineyard church from here five years ago. Can't believe that it's that long. But thank you for all your prayers. Thank you for supporting us from a distance. We've really felt that, really appreciated it. And we were here at Trent for 10 years before that. So we love it here. I love seeing what differences there are. I mean, for a moment, I thought I couldn't have a chocolate if I was visiting. That was, that was new. But it's just wonderful to be here, to come back. And we're so honored to be part of this Vineyard family. And it's an honor to speak this evening. Wonderful. As John said, I'm a football fan. And so one of the exciting things for me is that the football season has just started. I love that. And it's an exciting thing for me. And I know you can't all relate to it. And some of you are like, didn't they have a break? And why do they always play? And it's always on telly. But for me, I love it. And there's this expectation that rises in me that this is going to be the year. Like this is going to be the year that, that I might do some exercise and play football myself. That would be pretty good. But more than that, this is the year that my football team, John mentioned it, that Newcastle United would win the league like that's it this is the year or maybe a cup and actually they've won a game like that's pretty good they're favorites for relegation this year which isn't that helpful but they won a game today and that's wonderful and that's helped but generally what happens is this expectation starts so high really high but it doesn't have any grounding with stats or facts, or the pre-season transfers, or reality, or anything. And so within two weeks, which is generally about now, those expectations just start to dwindle away. And I should have known better. Same every year. And this evening, I want to talk about expectation. Expectation. And not so much about a football team winning the league, but as one of the things God wants to grow in us. He wants to grow that in all of us this evening, to increase our faith, to increase our hope and our confidence, to see more of God's presence and more of his power in our lives and beyond, in the city beyond. A dictionary definition of expectation, I'm sure you're wondering, a strong belief that something will happen, strong belief that something will happen, God wants us to grow. And so I wonder where your faith expectation level would be this evening. If you were like really honest and you were chatting to the person next to you. I mean, maybe it's your first week. Maybe you're exploring God and Jesus. And that's a tricky question to answer. I just hope I get through the week and, you know, it's, it's fun. But maybe you've got really high expectation. You're starting a new course or a new season and you're just really excited about all that God's doing. But my guess is that most of us, somewhere in between, and what I've noticed is that busyness and the pace of life and circumstances that just come up, they kind of rob us of expectancy. God wants to invite us into greater expectation. And I just want to look at one of my favorite stories of Jesus this evening. It's this beautiful encounter. You can follow it in Luke if you've got a Bible with you. Luke writes one of the first century biographies of Jesus. It's Luke chapter 5. And I'm going to pull out five, as it happens, practical tips around growing in expectation. Hopefully, they'd be helpful. So Luke chapter 5, 
And the story starts in verse 17. And it gives us a bit of context right away. It says this. One day, Jesus was teaching. And Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They'd come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. So what's been happening? Jesus has just started drawing these big crowds. People have been hearing about him, how he's announcing this new way to live, new way to relate to God. And they're traveling from all over to hear him. On this occasion, it's like an email has gone out to all the religious leaders of the day. And so they've come from every village and every town and even the big city where all the main scholars live in Jerusalem. These religious leaders should be the good guys. But if you know the story, they actually are Jesus's arch enemies, really. They kind of enforce all these laws and regulations and, and rules and they become really powerful. They don't recognize Jesus as God and they, they see him as a threat. So imagine the situation. They're like sitting there on the front row. They've, their laptops are open. They're looking for free Wi-Fi. They're ready to blog all this stuff about Jesus and what they think. They want to check him out. Not the kind of crowd that you'd want to speak in front of. But it's the context for this story. And then it says, and it's been up behind me all night. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. I mean, that's a cool line, isn't it? Like Jesus has this different level of authority, different level of power to the religious leaders. The sick are being healed. And it says, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Incredible story. And there's all these different dynamics going on. We've got Jesus in this place. He's uh, teaching. He's unpacking this new way to live with God. But it's a somewhat hostile crowd. And they're trying to work out what they think and if they agree or not. Meanwhile, the spirit of God is there. Jesus is healing the sick. And then enter four men. We, we know it's four. You can read about the story in Mark as well. He tells us there's four and they think about paralyzed guy, that this is his day. We're going to take him to see Jesus. And we don't know how they decided that. We don't know what their relationship was with him or how far they've traveled that day. But it's impressive. Like it's a hard thing to lift somebody on a mat, but they do it with confidence, with this expectation that Jesus can change the situation. So they get to the house, it's full, they get out into the courtyard, that's packed as well. And so what do these four guys do? We don't know anything about them, we don't know their attitude. And the phrasing literally says, they could not find a way. I like to imagine what their conversation would have been like. Because I guess they're pretty frustrated at this point and maybe one of them is a bit of a glass half empty person. Like, it's not going to happen today. There's people on top of people on top of people. Like, that's it. Um, maybe we should have just come earlier. Maybe we should come back later. We don't know what the guy on the mat is thinking. But we do know that at least one of these four people had a we're not taking no for an answer attitude. And I love it. And there's a lesson about expectation right there. 
that if we want to see something change, if we want to see dreams come alive, if we want to grow in faith, we can't be the kind of people who always take no for an answer. That's point number one. If you want to build a great business, if you want to see something take off, if you want to see a city come to life in Jesus and enough of the church decline that we all hear about, we can't always take no for an answer. Maybe you invite a friend, someone to come to Trent on a Sunday, and they say no. Our mindset could be, well, that's that then. You know, I'll drop you off right there. It was a long shot trying anyway. Or a better way would be, well, do you know what? That's okay. And maybe I'll wait a bit, and then I'll invite them again. And I'll, I'll even offer to pick them up, because maybe they don't quite know where the location is. It's about persevering. To do what they did, there wasn't a way in. And because there wasn't a way in, they tried something else until they found a way. Now, sometimes, as you know, there isn't a way. Like, we exhaust all of the I'm not taking no for an answer options. And uh, we have to move on to a new plan or a new idea. But these friends, they want to exhaust all the options first. And I love that about them. I think great churches are full of people like this. Okay, that didn't work. Well, let's try it this way. Or well, that seems like a little bit of a failure, but maybe we could rework it. And one of the things I love about Trent is that you have this in abundance. A little mindset shift that Anna and I have embraced over these few years are that problems are opportunities is to train our mind to see the problems in front of us as opportunities for something new. And pretty much every invention or innovation through history has come when people creatively did that. They would see problems as opportunities for something new. And so personally, this evening, I wonder what problems you are facing. What problems you're facing at the moment. And what would it look like to not always take no for an answer at work, at home, in relationships? Now, we've been looking for venue space in Chester the whole time. And we've, we've been growing as a church and we've been seeing people come to know Jesus for the first time. But we couldn't find a venue big enough. And there was one moment when we spotted a space at the university in Chester it was a while back, and we asked, and they said no. And then we thought we'd better pray about it and then ask again. We did that, and they still said no. And then we asked someone else who had a contact at the university, and they still said no. And eventually, we persuaded the conference manager to go for a coffee with us. And in about half an hour, his no became a yes. And that perseverance was amazing. Like, we've been meeting there for a couple of years, and it's been a real blessing. I mean, it's not big enough as it happens. And so for the last year, we've still been looking at other spaces. And, and probably once a week, we're on the phone or going to see some set of land. And as much as I don't like that and I want to give up, we can't always take no for an answer. So back to the story, I'm thinking one of them is like, well, we should have come back another day and maybe you're going to be paralyzed a little bit longer, maybe forever. But at least one saying, come on, let's check out every way. And they figure that no one is on the roof. The roof, like it's crazy if you think about it, even back then. Now, there would have been two ways onto the roof in houses back then. Uh, many had stairs to the side of the house. 
but they would have been crammed full of people. And so the more likely route is this house is connected to other homes. If you Google first century buildings, you'll get pictures like this. And so what's likely to have happened is that they actually went down a couple of houses to where it was quieter. And they get on the roof there and then they travel down roof after roof after roof to get to their house. It's very Mary Poppins-esque. It's the likely way they did it. All the time carrying a man on a mat. We've got this guy saying, I've got a plan. We can do it. And they work out the routes. I mean, hopefully they ask permission. They probably don't. But they get up one roof, another, and they find the right house. Is this it? Well, yes, it is. And, and then they start tearing down the tiles, making a hole in the roof big enough for a person to fit through. What a thing to do. Did a little bit of research on this. And the roofs were usually made with these huge beams that were three meters apart. And then it was made of wood and fat and stone and manure, and it just all held it together. And so one guy is probably, well, look, I've brought my shovel. I always carry my shovel with me. I don't know how they did it, but they, they do it. They dig through the roof. And like the text says, they find the right spot just above Jesus. And that would have been a huge relief because to drop a paralyzed guy on top of religious people, that would have been awful. Like they're not even allowed to touch paralyzed people. In their mindset, either the paralyzed man's done this horrendous sin, he's missed the mark, or his parents had, and that's why he was like he was. He was to be avoided. And so they don't drop him on the religious leaders. They drop him in front of Jesus. Bingo. And just to pause there for a moment, this is our goal as people of faith. As followers of Jesus, it's not to argue with everybody. It's not to change everybody's mind or convict people of all the stuff they've done wrong. Our role is to drop people down in front of Jesus. That's been our church plant goal for five years. That in every conversation and encounter that we have with people and friends and family and colleagues, the, the aim of that is to point people towards Jesus. Is to kind of metaphorically drop them in front of him. In the way that we love and the way that we serve, in the way that we invite or we pray for people. In the way we encourage, the way that we work in the workplace, pointing people towards Jesus. So my second top tip to grow expectation comes from this, because as we live like that, and I've noticed this in my own life, and I've noticed this in countless others, our expectation grows as we connect with our purpose. Expectation grows as we connect with our purpose. And when we follow Jesus, we become people with a purpose. We're on a mission to love people into relationship with Jesus. That becomes our goal. And there's something in us that comes alive when we do this. We moved to Chester five years ago, not because we wanted a promotion, not because we desperately wanted to lead a church or because we wanted to live in the Chester area or be on Hollywood Oaks or because we were fed up with Nottingham. It was like none of those reasons. We, we moved there because we loved, followed Jesus, and he was asking us to go. And he was breaking our heart for the 95% of people who don't know him yet. 
And he was giving us a little glimpse, a little bit of vision of what he might want to do in that area. And we were like in, 100% in. We're happy to move. We're happy to be unemployed for six months and, and struggle finding schools and the, the difficulties of, of moving away. And when I say happy, that's a slight exaggeration. It wasn't necessarily easy, but we were all in. And actually, our problem comes a bit more now. Like we're more established as a church. We have a morning and an evening gathering. We have some staff. We have a load of small groups and activities. And it's way easier to lose our focus in the busyness and settle and stop taking risks and stop the adventure of dropping people in front of Jesus. Let's not be like the religious people. They're the ones who are actually in the way. They're the ones who are stopping this guy going with the mat. But let's be like the four men. They're great friends. They really want to get this guy to Jesus. Many of us will know, if not all of us, will know people who don't know Jesus yet. And I guess the question for this point is, are we we willing to do something to make that happen? It's actually our great privilege. It's actually part of who we are to bring them to him. And there's always going to be an obstacle. There'll always be something in the way. The question is, will we be creative and resistant and get around the obstacles to find a way? As we live like that, we're connecting with our purpose. Expectation grows. Back to the story. They succeed, as we found out. The man is in front of Jesus. The homeowner is not going to be that impressed. His house is ruined. But Jesus is. And we carry on in verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith. When Jesus saw their faith. He's like, that's impressive. What an amazing thing to do, to come through a roof. That's kind of awesome. And just to pause there, like our faith, our expectation in what Jesus can do can be the game-changing factor in someone else's life. And at this point, they're commended by Jesus. I imagine the four mat carriers all high-fiving on the roof. And like even the one who was opposed to the whole idea, he's thinking, oh, it wasn't too bad after all. All high-fiving. And he says, Jesus said to them, friend, or to the guy, friend, Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're like me, it's like, hang on. Jesus, I thought you were going to heal this man. Like, wasn't that the point? Wasn't that the reason that the four of us carried this guy over there, that that you would heal him? I'm trying to imagine what they'd be thinking and the crowd and the religious leaders hate that, as we'll find out in a moment, because they had their own system for temporarily forgiving sin. In fact, we'll read that. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? Which is a great question, by the way, which is easier But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. 
Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was filled, sorry, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. And again, if you imagine it, what an incredible moment. This man was probably paralyzed from birth, and he gets up, holds his mat. He's probably saying, can you show me where the door is? Like, I came through the roof. I don't know how to get out of this building. And he's out. He's off home. He's walking. He's telling everyone. He goes to his family. There's going to be mouths wide open. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. That's what it says. See, God wants to grow expectation in us. He wants to increase our hope and our confidence to see more of him, to, to know more of his presence and his power. And it's not so that we'd look good. It's not so that we would get attention. The goal is that everyone gives praise to God. I said, filled with awe, they said, we've seen remarkable things today. So third point expectation grows as we get to know how big God is. As we get to know God. At Vineyard 53, and I'm sure like here as well, we long for more. And we long for more of those, I can't really explain this situation, but God stories. I don't know how that happened, but God. Like there's no way to explain or understand this, but God. And I love hearing stories like that, what God is doing. There was a, a guy who came up to, to me after church two weeks ago, and he'd been prayed for the previous month, and he'd been healed from a fractured shoulder just after being prayed for after a morning gathering. And he found out in the week after that he could suddenly do more than he was able to, so he went back to his doctor, and he's now got the before scan and the after scan, and there's complete healing. And the only way the doctor could explain the change was just a rare self-healing. That's what the doctor wrote down. I love those stories. I was hearing last week about Colombia and the number of people following Jesus there, the number of people going to church has risen from 3%, which is similar to the UK, to 30% in just over a decade. 3 to 30%. Can you imagine that? I love it. I was reading some stories about church history just this summer from Wales, which is pretty close to where we are in Chester. And I was reading about this whole school that, that came to faith, like teachers and children just encounter the Holy Spirit one morning and the whole village and town just changed in a moment. Incredible. You know, if we limit how big God is, if we live thinking that Jesus isn't capable or powerful or in control, we'll live really different lives to someone who's convinced they're in the safe hands of an all-knowing, ever-present God who is big, who's capable. J.B. Phillips, Christian theologian, wrote a brilliant book in the 1950s entitled, Your God is Too Small. And he talks about all these, these images that we can have of God that we might hold that just shrink him, that make him out to be too small or angry or distant. A.W. Tozer, amazing Christian author again, he uh, extends that thought and says this. 
the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. It's what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What a profound thought. Because if I wake up and if I go through the day with a a kind of small image of God, there are consequences. And I could live in a state of fear and anxiety because everything depends on me and I'll be led by my circumstances. I'll probably find it hard to pray because does prayer even make any difference? But when we shrink God, we offer prayer without faith. We worship, but without any awe. We can serve, but there's no joy there. And when we suffer, we go without hope. And the result of all that is just a life of stagnation and fear and loss of vision and an inability to see things through. The four friends, they lived with a big God. They knew Jesus could change the situation. They were confident in him. And so, again, practically this evening, how might you get to know God better this season? How might you invest? What might you do just to spend more time with him and get to know who he is? And it's a yes to digging deeper. It's a yes to small groups, if you're not sure. It's a yes to prayer. It's a yes to reading the Bible and investing time with God. Okay, so we've talked about not taking no for an answer, seeing problems as opportunities. We've talked about our role being to to drop people in front of Jesus and that our expectation grows as we do that and, and it grows as we get to know how big God is. Two points. I promise these are pretty quick. The fourth one, expectation grows as we walk into our identity. As a pastor, one of the things that I see all the time, and I know this in my life as well, is that we can walk around with labels that other people have given us. Or we can be defined by labels that we've given ourselves. All we know about the paralyzed man in this story is paralyzed. We don't know his name. No one mentions his name once. Probably no one even knew his name. In that culture, he was an outcast. So it'd be more like, oh, there's paralyzed man. I know who you're talking about. Paralyzed man. I saw him on Tuesday. Yeah, paralyzed man. That's his name. It wasn't that four guys brought Jeff, their friends, who happened to be paralyzed. No, for the whole of his life, he's defined by that one word. Yet in Jesus' first words to him, he redefines who he is. And I'll read it again. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to him, the paralyzed man, friend. And if you look at the other place, this story is recorded in Mark 2. You read this. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. So paralyzed went away. And friend and son now became the story of this man's life. He's no longer defined by anyone else's opinion of him, but defined by God's opinion. What if greater than even walking is knowing we're loved by God, that we're chosen in heaven, that we're a friend of God and in Jesus, a son or a daughter of the living God. This is the greatest thing that we need to hear this evening. 
Because I reckon we'll all carry labels. They're powerful things. They determine how we see ourselves and we see others and how we view the world. And maybe something that someone said to you has been just become a definition of you over time. It's been stuck in your mind. Maybe physically you can walk, but emotionally you're on the mat. About 12 years ago, I was on a training day, and there was this professional, this highly respected trainer leading the day, and it was actually fantastic. We'd been doing all these personality tests, and we'd been filling out all these forms the previous week, and we were being analyzed, and there was all this helpful stuff. I got chatting to the trainer at lunch, and they'd done this with hundreds of Christian leaders all around the country. And I showed them my results. I said, this is my personality. What kind of roles, what job does this personality type generally do? What am I going to be good at? Where might I succeed? And they reeled off all these like, nice answers and these really good roles. But at the end, they said, and it was just a throwaway comment. They just said, they don't make very good church planters. They don't make good senior leaders. And then they named person after person with a different personality type who were planting churches, leading churches, and doing it really well. And I was like, oh, okay. And, and, I, and I shelved that away in my mind. And, and even though I'd, I'd heard God's whispers for a number of years about church planting, I held this trainer's identity. And it took five years before that started to unravel. And I took on a truer identity from God. We can walk a long way, even without really knowing it, but just living under someone else's description. But we are a friend of God. We're on God's radar. You're invited to be a son or a daughter of God. And God's in the business of surprising us with what is possible as we take on that identity. And so practically another challenge, if you're up for it from tonight, would be to spend some time asking God what he thinks of you. What does God think of you? And would you write that down? And, and would you put it on your fridge so you can see it and let it sink in? And I'll say, if you're not sure, the Bible really got a lot in here to help you. So you have to get your Bible out. You have to ask your friends, where in the Bible does it talk about me? What does he think about you? And put it on your fridge and see how it changes you. The final way to grow expectation is to get our priorities right. Priorities right. I think the surprising moment in this story is when Jesus forgives the man's sins. See, everyone was expecting a miracle. The people carrying the mat, they'd gone however many miles to get there. They just wanted this guy healed. And Jesus knew that the man wanted to be healed. That's what the crowd wanted as well. They were all gathered. The pressing need, the desire was to be healed. But Jesus knew that it wasn't his primary need. I think for me and for us, you know, our prayers are often around health or they're around money or success or relationships or fame. And all these things aren't necessarily wrong. They're really pressing needs. But what doesn't tend to show up on our list that high is forgiveness or is peace with God. It doesn't seem so urgent. It's not as felt. 
But in this story, Jesus has everyone's attention. Everyone's ready to see a miracle. And he wants to reshape our priorities. That our primary need is forgiveness. That it's connection with our heavenly father. And not simply in this life, but forever. That's what I need most at my deepest level, forgiveness above all the other wants and needs. My pressing need isn't health or wealth or companionship or fame. I mean, it's pressing, but it's forgiveness is what I need. To know that I'm right with my heavenly father. And, you know, Jesus, he comes into the world to say, yes, you can be eternally secure. You can be eternally connected to your father who loves you. And I'm going to demonstrate that I've got authority to promise you that by healing this man and by healing a whole load of people since and even today. Peace with God doesn't come from being a religious person. It doesn't come from owning a Bible or because you go through a set of spiritual exercises. The reason we can have peace It's because Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins and wipe them away. So for me, I know I'm forgiven, not because I'm perfect, not because I don't make any mistakes, but because Jesus has authority to forgive sins. And I asked him and he did. That's how I have peace with God. It's incredible. Jesus at the cross is what he does. He takes our sin. He, he pays the price so that we could be eternally secure, eternally connected to our heavenly father. And so I wonder today if just a handful of us are just still spiritually on the mat. And maybe we haven't got peace with God because we've not asked for forgiveness. We've not fully received it yet. And our expectation will grow as we take that step, as as we start to prioritize and put Jesus as number one in our life above all the other pressing needs, expectation will grow. So just to sum up, God wants to, to grow expectation in us. He wants to lead us in that, even this evening. And the invitation is not to stay on the edge of the crowd, but it's to dig through God's roof, almost, and find ourselves in his presence. It's to be people who don't always take no for an answer. It's people who connect with our purpose and bring our friends and and find life there. It's as people who get to know Jesus and invest in seeing how big he is, walking in our identity, putting him first. And these things will change us. They will grow new hope and faith, and expectation, and excitement for more. They will take us on an adventure. And so I want to encourage you to to put some of those into practice from today. Wonderful. If you're able, would you like to stand?